Okay. Um, any questions, thoughts, complaints, haiku over any of uh, what I went over this morning about the um, understanding why we have a statement of faith, what our statement of faith means, how we arrived at it, any of those things? Any questions or thoughts on that? Okay. Um, well, I'll uh, wait. I got some more places to go. I don't see any hands, so... I, oh, we do have one. Oh, we have got one here. Okay. okay. Thanks for the message. I enjoyed it. Just a note on gospel-only Christians. I, I haven't really seen that with new Christians. It's been people that grew up in the church. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the challenge can be, I think... We frequently the pendulum swings the other way. So you've got sort of you can have a dead confessionalism where you your doctrines are all dotted, your T's are all crossed, and there's no actual orthopraxy. And so you you don't want that. You don't want that. So you just sort of I mean, and there's a sense in which who would I rather fellowship with? A stone cold, unmoved, unpassionate, fully orthodox brother, or you know, someone who totally disagrees with me on a ton of non-gospel things, who's trying to be faithful and on fire, no question, with the second I'd rather be spending time with. And so if that's your experience, if you find your cult, church cold, dead, lifeless, and then you're like, hey, these, I mean, some of my favorite friends are wildly charismatic. They're back in New Hampshire. I'm looking forward to seeing them when I, when I go to New Hampshire. And I really am not on the same page with them on a number of issues about prophecy and tongues. I love their passion. They're the most faithful evangelists I know, and I love spending time with them. I get why it'd be challenging for us to be in the same local church, but man, I love their passion for the Lord. I love their passion for the gospel, and I think it's fantastic. And so if you're contrasting that with a dead orthodoxy to that, then I think the sort of it has got to be a third way. It doesn't have to either be no doctrine or dead doctrine. We're trying to get the middle path. But I tend to think that's why. You want, you want to go further with that? or Just the people I've interacted with, it's that they don't like what's being stated in the letters, and they find it better to disregard them completely. Oh, oh yeah. Well, no, if you, if, you want to, if you want to try to harmonize Christianity the spirit of the age, ignore Paul. Ignore Paul. Um, and so that's another way to do it. And, but the problem is you're going to have an orthopraxy. So whether or not you take a stand on gay marriage, whether or not you take a stand on women elders, whether or not you take a stand on any number of topics, you will practically have people in the group who are living out a belief system. So you will have a position, right? And so then what's going to happen is when there's conflict between the body, the leadership's going to have to decide whether to resolve that conflict or whether or not to say, let's agree to disagree. If you agree to disagree about, say, gay marriage or about transgender, you've officially adopted the position of gay marriage. Because what you're saying is it'll take place in our churches and we will say nothing will do nothing. So, like, you, you now have a position. You have a functional position, even if you don't have a position in paper, which is part of what I was saying. It's impossible to not have a position. You will functionally have a position. Um, and, and so... You may not just 
there's a sense in which like then be courageous enough to say your position, you know, right? So that, that that is the other reason I think people try to minimize doctrine is to to, to remove those things. But if if you don't have a statement, eventually you'll have a, a practical outworking of those things. It's inescapable. So let's not have any creed but Christ is practically impossible. Really, it is, um, and. The fact that no creed but Christ is itself a creed is an irony that I find delicious. But further with that, or is that is that that's all that's all for now? Okay. Any other uh, any other questions or thoughts? Okay. Then let's turn to. Um, I want, to, I want to take a few minutes to go through the trustworthy statements. You can just turn to the back of your insert if you've got an insert. You think about the issues the early church is going through um, and trying to reverse engineer what the context was that required these things. It's fascinating to me. Fascinating to me. So just if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Timothy, because we're just going to work our way through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, um, tracking these. And it gives us insight into um, how they were discipling their new converts. So 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I think of whom I am foremost is Paul's addition to that. It's possible that the saying included that as well. But I think less likely. And so here's the first thing. This is a great first thing to teach someone. If you know anything about Christianity and the gospel, it's to know that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But it's packaged neatly, it's memorable, and Paul says that's, that's a good one. Now, go to chapter 3. And this is one, I'm really curious what the background was that they had to say this. It's also one of the ones that most clearly is poetic, and, uh, and Alex corrected me. Where's Alex? Can you say again what the, the, I think it's the Net Bible has as the translation, because I didn't do it right. The rhyming thing, we're getting a microphone here. Um, to try to match or mimic the uh, Greek. I think it's, to him who would an elder be, a noble, ta- a noble task desireth he. There you go. It's a great translation. And so Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And, and I'm, I'm fascinated thinking, in what context does that need to be clarified? Maybe, maybe there was a notion that it was presumptuous to seek such a thing. You know, and I've certainly seen organizations where don't contact us, we'll contact you if we're interested in leadership. And so one of the things the early church thought was important to say is, hey, this aspiration is not a mark of pride. This aspiration is not a mark of being presumptuous. This aspiration is actually a good thing. Um, that made their top five list of concise doctrinal statements. Fascinating. But they, this was something known, and Paul says, amen, this is, this is a good thing. And then he goes on to make it clear, even as it's a good desire to have, there are high standards. So we, you know, we got guys who have acknowledged to me there's a desire, and there's like, okay, great, keep working at it, keep growing, um, and we'll, we'll see. Third, 1 Timothy 4, 8 through 9. I'll start in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Notice again the emphasis on 
sound or healthy. When you see good doctrine or sound doctrine, the Greek literally is healthy doctrine. Um, having nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, and then here I think the saying begins, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now here it occurs before, I think pretty clearly, because verse 10 wouldn't make any sense as a trustworthy saying. And so the next thing we see the church marking out is, hey, living out godliness is valuable. Why? Two reasons. It holds a promise for the present life and for the life to come. That's similar to what James says about, blessed is he who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. And you're going to see in the next ones, there's an emphasis of persevering and persevering in suffering that the early church is telling their Christians. There's no bait and switch in the first church. You become a follower of Jesus, buckle up, get ready to suffer. Buckle up, get ready to suffer. And so here is part of that. Look, godliness is of great gain, great benefit. They package that. That's a trustworthy saying. Second Timothy, chapter 2. Second Timothy, chapter 2. This saying is trustworthy. And my citation here should have included verse 13. Clearly, verse 13 is part of it. If, then we get these parallel couplets. If we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And then the ESV thinks the last bit isn't part of it, for he cannot deny himself. Again, notice, notice the doctrinal significance here. The early church is emphasizing, again, and, and in their context, there's the very real possibility that someone might pull you aside, put a knife to your throat, and say, curse Christ or die. Offer incense to Caesar or die. And the church wasn't saying, it doesn't matter how you live your life, God will forgive you. Their church was saying, and packaging for people to remember, so that it might come to their mind when they're, when they're forced to make such a decision. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And then this warning, if we deny him, he also will deny us, which is exactly what Jesus said. Whoever denies me before men, the Son of Man will deny, deny before the Father and the holy angels of God. And the early church thought that was important enough to encourage and remind people with. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So that makes sense in the context of persecution the early church has. And it's giving us insight in the struggles they're facing, the, the controversies that are arising. And it's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And then finally, if we turn over to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. And I'm going to start by, at the beginning of the chapter because uh, I don't want to interrupt the flow of thought. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, 
disobedient, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, notice, by the way, this saying is Trinitarian. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, there's the Father, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's a great gospel summary right there. Trinitarian in nature. You see the Father in verse 4. You see the Holy Spirit in verse 5. You see the Son in verse 6. Um, and that's, that's some insight. Con- con- there are other, and there's some debate. I tried to put the clearest statements in, 1 Timothy 3.16 being one. Others have suggested that uh, Philippians 2 is also an early Christian doctrinal statement. The problem is Paul is a good writer and he can be eloquent, and so it's hard to distinguish Paul's eloquence, Paul's poetry, from which is part of the early church, which is why I only included those examples that I think are absolutely clear. Great is our common confession, First Timothy 3.16, what follows are these trustworthy sayings. Um, but it, it's, it's, it tells us a lot and gives us a window into the early church. Any, any questions on any of those, the trustworthy sayings or anything? Oh, Wanda, in the back. I've kind of grappled with the, if you deny him, and I get it if you say, no, I want nothing to do with God, I don't believe in God, that I get. But I heard one time about the example of ISIS, that they weren't threatening your life, they would threaten the life of your loved one. And I'm thinking, if my children were standing here, and someone said, if you don't deny Christ, we're going to kill all your grandkids... I would think, okay, God, forgive me, but I think I'd be tempted to deny him. And beg I think for every one of us. I think every one of us would be tempted to do that. Is that okay, though? Or does he? Is Jesus this, is said, this strict? "No, no, no, no." And th- no, this is where we do people no favors by bait and switch. Jesus Himself t- turn turn to Luke fifteen. Um, turn to Luke fifteen. Jesus did not bait and switch. He was up front. Luke 14, Luke 14, sorry. It's the end of 14. See, I remember things, but I remember what's on the page, and I knew chapter 15 in my Bible is on the page. It's just the text is to the left of that. So it's Luke 14, Luke 14. But there's that 15 right there. Okay. Um, Let's pick up verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, and and so first observation, this is general teaching. What Jesus is about to say is not limited to a particular context, to a particular person. This is something Jesus would say without qualification to great crowds. This isn't something that requires nuance. This is general proclamation of Jesus to great crowds. If anyone, universal inclusive language, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, 
and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So whether or not there's grace for someone who fails that, whether or not someone who does that could repent and be restored, I think it's possible. But Jesus envisions that exact scenario and up front says, look, if you don't love me enough to watch your kids die, you can't be my disciple. Now, God forbid any of us be put on that spot. And if I ever were put in that spot, I would have to trust in the fact that God would provide grace for me to be faithful. I don't in my own strength and in my own, the grace in the grace that God's given me today. I do not feel like I would be strong enough to do that. And I would have to hope and trust that in that day where that test was given to me, God would give a measure of grace where I could. But I do appreciate the fact that Jesus doesn't pull any punches. And right up front, he's like, let me make it clear. You want to come after me? This is the level of loyalty, the level of commitment that you must have. And so, go, go, go. Oh, no. I'm said, wow. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and the early church took Jesus at his word. And so that's, that's, again, noticing... These are people who are watching there. I mean, church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down next to his daughter and his wife, and that they would encourage each other through the process. Now, we can't know that with certainty. That's extra biblical historical information, but that's what church history tells us. You read Fox's book of Martyrs. We see people who take this very literally, living it out, and it is terrifyingly beautiful. And so God, God forbid that I am tested this way, but he'll do us right. I would be terrified to be tested this way. But it's not as though Jesus didn't speak to exactly these types of contingencies up front. And that's where a gospel presentation is simply emphasizing the, the, the experiential. You're going to have meaning, and you're going to have life, and you're going to have a better life. Or maybe they'll crucify you upside down. Or maybe, like Hebrews 11, they'll saw you in half. Probably Isaiah, probably. Um, again, extra biblical things. But Hebrews 11 talks about people sawn in half as models and halls of faith. And so, so the Bible is way more realistic about people are going to hate you, things are going to be rough, you've got to love me more than you love anything. And the early church seems to have understood that perfectly. I mean, in other words, the, the, this trustworthy saying in Second Timothy confirms that what I'm suggesting here, Jesus means what he says, and, they, and it confirms the early church understood Jesus to mean what he said, and that they didn't think there was some workaround um, this they, they took him very seriously, and, they, and you better make sure you understand this. You better have it memorable and memorized so that when that Roman centurion comes up to you and says, offer incense to Caesar, curse Christ, you remember, if I deny him, he'll deny me. That's what happens. Whether or not there's repentance afterwards, they're, they're, they make, the grace of God abounds up over the sinfulness of man. But what I would expect to happen is what Jesus said happens. Thank you. That helps, really. Jacob. Oh, sorry, Dennis. Well, the mic goes to Jacob. Dennis. And then there's the uh, the part where Peter denied Jesus three times. Yeah. And he was repentant. He had godly repent. So God's yeah. grace. So when you say, obviously, you don't want to deny Christ, but... I was reading John MacArthur, and he said that's a permanent. If we permanently deny him, then obviously he's going to deny you. But there is grace available, and if you had godly remorse like Peter did. So there's always that friction, you know, 
God's grace covers a lot of sins. And uh, so I just thought of that, too, that, I mean, Peter denied him three times. Jesus said you were going to do that. But Jesus graciously brought him back. And then Peter demonstrated this repentance by dying faithfully by crucifixion. I mean, that's, that's the other piece to add in. It's not just Peter said I'm really sorry. Peter showed he was really sorry. Jacob. Yeah, um, James 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then down in 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So you have the idea that um, you show your faith by that kind of work. Well, the earliest Christian schisms occurred precisely over this. Um, If you've ever wondered where Roman Catholic's doctrine of penance comes from, it came from the Donatist controversy. And I'm really sympathetic with it. Roman persecution is vicious, especially under Nero. Christians were put in... um, we got kids present, so I'll try not to be too graphic. They were put in animal clothing and uh, torn into pieces by animals. They were made into human candles to light Nero's um, charioteering court and other awful things. And once Constantine and the persecution lifted and Constantine legalized Christianity, there were a number of people who had not held the faith. They had compromised. They had given up the holy books, they had denied Christ, they'd offered incense to Caesar, and now, especially because Constantine is claiming himself to be a Christian, and the Roman, the Roman Empire is Christian, a lot of these people want back in. How would you feel if you watched your wife, your son, your daughter, get tortured to death because they wouldn't deny Christ, and yet the Joneses... I don't you know two rows over from you or whatever. The Joneses at the first whiff of persecution were like, "Hail Caesar!" You know, how how would you feel when the Joneses want back in? They want to worship alongside of you. They want you to pass them the communion plate. They might find that challenging. And there was a great debate in the church over exactly this because there were people citing Jesus saying they're done. They denied Christ. Christ is going to deny them. Done. Game set match. And it wasn't that they didn't believe repentance was possible, but citing Jacob's point, they were saying, you need to demonstrate your repentance. So you, like Peter, would need to go not recant under persecution. But the problem is there isn't any persecution because Constantine's legalized Christianity. Their answer, the Donatists would say, that Peter was able to show his repentance. And so there is no repentance for you to live it out because you can't be faithful. You can't pass the test another time because it won't come. And so the church then came up with works of penance that they could do publicly and be seen to do. This isn't the right answer, but it's the answer they came up with. But I want you to understand why. Because the people who had lost sons and daughters, husbands and wives, eyes and fingers, wanted to see these people live out their repentance. They wanted to see these people do something. So since, since you can't demonstrate that you've overcome this particular sin, because there is no persecution, we'll give you some things to do instead. How about you flagellate yourself? How about you crawl on your knees? Works of penance came into being. And they did it so as not to, not to divide the church, because there were people saying, we simply will not worship with those who Christ says he will deny. Now, I think the answer to the question is the parable of the tares, 
where Jesus talks about how um, the, the land workers of a, of a field owner come to him and say, your enemy has, has sown tares among the, the, the wheat. And they ask if they should go tear them out. And, and the, the landowner says, no, lest you tear out the wheat as well. We would ex- so there's a fine line. I would expect someone who is repentant, I would even demand someone who's repentant, in time would confirm that repentance with the change of their action. What I don't think we have the authority to do is to say, I will forgive you when you demonstrate that repentance. Jesus, in fact, is clear. Your brother comes to you 40 times in a day and says, I repent, you must forgive him. So there's, there's, a, there's a balancing act here. When someone comes to me the 30th time, it can be wholly appropriate to say, brother, of course I'll forgive you. What do you, but also, what are you planning on doing differently? What do you think it would look like on the other side of this? What types of things would we expect to see as you bear this repentance out, right? Um, and likewise, if someone you know, is, is not bearing it out, to challenge that repentance. Repentance starts in the heart, but it doesn't stay there. So, if someone's, so Jesus is saying, I'm not to sort the wheat from the tares. I'm not to give you things to do. I'm not going to create homework, repentance homework for you of, of works to do. That's, that's where repentance comes from. But we would expect and confirm it to come out in time. So I, I think the right answer would be if the Joneses say they're faithful. Here, here's what I think the right answer would be. If the Jones is totally buckled under persecution. And um, you know, the, 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 uh, the similar to those who are like Nazi uh, sympathizers and people who, you know, when, when the Blitzkrieg came in were, hail Caesar, I mean, hail Hitler or whatever, right? Um, the Lord knows their heart. God is not mocked. We are going to, if they say they repent, we're going to forgive them. And we're going to trust that God is not mocked and that if they are deceiving and lying, it will become evident that the fruit of the tree, the tree will in time be known by the, the Joneses tree will, will soon enough be known by its fruit. And yes, it's likely we'll never have a chance to see them um, confess Christ under persecution, but we will have many, many chances to see the Joneses' love, dedication, and commitment to Christ be shown. And we would absolutely expect to see that in time. But we wouldn't require that fruit prior to forgiveness. Um, questions? Th- oh. So my question is on Mark thirteen eleven. Is it okay if I read it? Yeah. Mark, let me turn there. It's okay if you read it, if I can turn there first. Hold on. Mark thirteen eleven. Hold on. Okay. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So my question is, what are the conditions... (laughs) for me to be in the Holy Spirit at Mm. that point. Before I answer your question, notice verse 13. Jesus reiterates the same point we've been talking about. You'll be hated from all by my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Um, And this is where I'm saying, let me pause and get back. This is why I was saying, if you feel unable in the grace in which you stand today to watch your children be 
tortured and not deny Christ, it's entirely likely that the grace you have today would prove insufficient for that trial. Um, Jesus is saying, don't worry. If you're mine in that day, and this is part of the basis, the, the, the early church would say, this person proved themselves to be a non, a false convert, because in that day, the Holy Spirit did not give them words to speak. The Holy Spirit did not strengthen them. They were proven to be a false convert, because in that moment, God didn't give them supreme aid and help. Um, and that was, if you read, if you read church history, that was their understanding of those who would buckle under pressure. In fact, the notion of martyrdom, they, there's a strong emphasis on not being presumptuous. The early church believed, the earliest church believed, if you presumptuously put yourself forward for martyrdom, and while the church is trying to lay low and hide, you could just go forward to a Roman official and be like, I worship Christ and Caesar's a idol, and they'd cut you down. And the thought was, if you did that presumptuously, God would not uphold you in that moment. Um, and so they, this is where the, this is where it also, I know I'm dodging your question, I'll get to it. This is also where the reverence for the saints came. Because those, I mean, think of what, what could give you more encouragement than watching someone faithfully persevere in confessing Christ in front of persecution. And so those who can, the martyrs, the witnesses, they confessed and they did not deny and God upheld them. And so what they begin to do is at about the year anniversary of someone's faithful confession, they, let's gather and let's celebrate the Lord's Supper where they struck down Tommy, right? And so that this became just a, you can see how easily and organically it could be. Let's, this is Tommy's perseverance unto the end faithfulness day that we're, we're remembering, and very quickly it starts shifting to, you know, the bones and the, the relics. And the, but it starts with something great, esteeming those who God upheld them. They did it, you know. So what do I, what do I how do I know I'm, I'm uh, going to have the Spirit with me? I'd probably go to Ephesians um, chapter 5 about being filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. I mean, we just do a study on that. But in short, if I'm in fellowship with God, if I'm walking in light, let me, yeah, let me use the categories of 1 John 1, 9. If I'm, if I'm endeavoring to be faithful to God, if I'm dealing with the sin he's showing me, if I am in his word, then I would expect that I am in fellowship with him, I'm in fellowship with the body, and I'm walking in light, and his spirit is leading me. I, I don't think it's a magic trick. If, if that's where you're at, then, then I believe you can only do that faithfully by walking in the spirit. So... Um, it would be, yeah, First John, if we, say, if, we, if we say we have fellowship with the Father and walk in darkness, we lie, and it's, the truth is not in us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our trespasses and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So that would be my understanding. If that's where you're at, yeah, God, is, you're being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit isn't about ecstatic utterance. Being filled with the Spirit isn't about exalted experience. Being filled with the Spirit, let's, let's go to Ephesians 5. Being filled with the Spirit really is seen in some rather mundane things in comparison. Um, Ephesians 5. No, there's a, number, there's a lot of passages. I'm thinking of Ephesians 5. Um, Ephesians 5, verse uh, 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, 
but be filled with the Spirit. And then you either have to think that verse 19 and 20 tell you how to be filled with the Spirit. I don't think that's the case. Rather, they show you what it looks like. Here, what, how do I know if I'm filled with the Spirit? How do I know the Spirit's in me? And this is part of where you want to challenge some of the charismatic excesses, because I know a lot of Christians who say, you know you're filled with the Spirit when you speak in other tongues. You know you're filled with the Spirit when you are overcome with the grace of God and just you drop to your knees in awe. That can be a great thing. I got nothing against being overcome with the greatness of God. I think Paul says, here's how I know you're filled with the Spirit of God. When you're addressing one another, when you're speaking to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, when you're singing, like, were you filled with the Spirit? Well, were you singing this morning? Or were you just sort of opening your mouth so it looked like you were? That's a mark of being, that's a pretty mundane mark of the Spirit. Did you, did you enjoy singing or was it a chore? Okay. Um, and I don't care if you can't sing well. God gave you your tongue and God is pleased when his children praise him. Um, Making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks. Were you being thankful? That's a mark of being filled with the Spirit. For everything. To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submitting to one another out of reverence. Were you insisting on your own way? Or were you preferring other people? That's someone who's filled with the Spirit. Or we could go, as Marina was suggesting, to Galatians. And see the fruit of the Spirit listed out. Love. Who's, who's got the fruit of the Spirit memorized? Anybody? Lee, hit it. What is it? Yeah, that, 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 I mean, so, the, so the being filled with the Spirit, I'm not saying it's not supernatural and it's not amazing. Compared to the showy pyrotechnics, flashing light stuff, it's mundane. It's remarkable when you see it, and it's amazing that it's the grace of God. I don't want to downplay it. I'm just saying we're not looking for fiery tongues of fire appearing of our heads. God can do that if he wishes. He's done it once to my knowledge and only once. But we're looking for these things. Um, in fact, as you go through the Ephesians and the household code, the, in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands, it's, the word submit's not in the Greek. It's borrowing the verb submit from verse 21. It does occur down in verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So it's clear from that he means this. But the Greek is literally submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives to your own husbands. What means, which means then, what's the mark of a spirit-filled wife? Because this is not a new thought. The mark of a spirit-filled wife is a wife who honors and submits to her husband. Husbands, love your, what's the mark of a spirit-filled man who's married? He loves his wife and he's sacrificially serving and washing with the word. Which then means, what's the mark of spirit-filled children? They obey their parents. What's the mark of spirit-filled slaves? They work heartily. What's the mark of spirit-filled masters? They're not harsh, right? Again, the marks of the spirit are, are, are obvious, and they're not mystical. Um, but so the entire household code of the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6 is directly connected and outflowing. This is, when he talks about submitting to one another, a wife's submission to her husband of obedience is different than a husband. There's a sense in which a husband, I'm submitting myself to my wife by being willing to die for her, by laying down my life for her. There's a sense in which I'm ordering myself in regard to her that way, right? Um, but it looks differently, and it's going to look different for kids, and it's going to look different for slaves, and it's going to look different for masters, but we're all, we're all considering the good of the other and how we c- conduct ourselves. In that sense, we're submitting to one another. So th- that entire thing, then, is linked back to being filled with the Spirit. So, yeah. That's, 
I think part of the reason we want to focus on extra exciting, glitzy things is these things are really hard. <laughs> so, you know, if I can speak in an ecstatic speech, even though I'm a pretty lousy husband, that means I'm filled with the Spirit, right? No. No, that doesn't mean that at all. Greg Roleck. Just a comment. Oh. Uh, with regards to, you know, how, how can we help ourselves be filled with the Spirit for that time of persecution or trial? I'm reminded at the number of times that the Lord told the disciples something that they didn't understand until the time that mm. it was happening. Yeah. And so I think that for us to be, um, to, to be filled with the Spirit or to give the Spirit the tools to use in that time, reading God's Word is a simple you know, oh, um, way to fill your heart and your mind and remember the things that the Lord has said. I mean, we've been doing it all morning. We've been quoting scripture um, about, you know, you know, what, what the, what those that have come before us have, have done and what the Bible says about that. What did the Lord actually say um, to those? And I just think that that's the, the, that's going to give a, the spirit, yeah. the tools to use in that time. No, no, let me, let me, let me steal man your position. That's a term I just learned. You don't straw man, you steal man. Um, I got that for my four and a half hour debate. Um, look, look again closely at Ephesians 4, 5, 19. The marks of being filled with the Spirit are addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in love into the household code. Now turn to Ephesians' younger brother, Colossians. Um, I joke. Colossians has much of the same order, structure, and topic of content as Ephesians. And here's one of the points where it lines up. So then, in Ephesians, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What's that look like? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why? Submit. Do you see the flow of thoughts identical? Now, what's different? In Ephesians, it's be filled with the Spirit. Here, it's let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Which suggests... If they're not identical, and I don't think they're identical, they so largely overlap as to be co-relative. Where you get one, you will get the other. Where the word of Christ is dwelling... What's, in other words, what are the marks of the word of Christ dwelling richly in someone? They're addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving thanks, ordering themselves and their households rightly. What's the mark of being filled with the Spirit? Same thing. Which one do I have more direct ability to influence? The word of Christ dwelling in me. So if you compare Ephesians with Colossians, we, we learn that having the word of Christ dwell in you richly parallels and co-occurs with the spirit indwelling. Um, so that suggests, and again, we know in scripture the spirit doesn't speak on his own authority. He only testifies to what he's seen. It makes perfect sense that the spirit's weapon of choice is God's. His tool of choice is the word of God in our hearts. So you give the Holy Spirit much to work with as you're studying the word. Amen, Greg. Who's, who's got, oh, ye. oh, it's Jacob again. Um, Couldn't you find someone else? This is going to come off like I'm saying I'm better 
than this, and I'm not, so let me just qualify up front. But I, as I think about that situation, say I'm there and being asked to allow my kids to die so I don't um, deny Christ, I just, that would be hard, yes. no doubt, and I would you know, agree with you, you're probably not going to do that in your own strength. You're going to be asking for the Lord's strength right, in that right. time. But it, as I was listening, something that as a caution maybe came to my mind was Romans 2, um, 4. Do, you, do not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. So just the idea of going into a thing and doing something that I know is wrong and yeah. just trusting that God's going to forgive me for it is a little presumptuous. Well, the, the lesson I've had to learn when I've, when I've played with sin, I mean, shortly after becoming a believer, I, I quit smoking cigarettes, quit some other things. And I remember thinking, oh, I could have a cigarette and not be addicted. I could have a cigarette and not be enslaved. And that turned out not to be true because I, I don't have the power to repent on my own flesh. I mean, this is part of what it means to believe in the sovereignty of God is to understand what Second Timothy 2 says. Uh, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God grants them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So you're absolutely right, Dennis. If you deny the Lord and repent, you'll be restored. Who's to say you can repent? What makes you think you're going to be able to repent? Um, and so if you can, absolutely. But who's to say the Lord won't give you over to the hardness of your heart? Who's to say the Lord won't say, okay, be done with you then? And so there is no guarantee of that. So, so yes, the, broken, this, the, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God never rejects those, which is why when I talk to people who wonder if they've gone too far or if they've committed the unforgivable sin, rather than chasing your tail on that, get to a place of brokenness and repentance. I promise you God will not reject you. But, if, but some people aren't simply able to, like Esau. He sought for a place to repent with tears. Go to Hebrews 11. This is terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Um, what's said of Esau so hear me loud and clear. If you can repent, you will be restored and forgiven. Full stop, no qualification. However, that if is Hebrews 12. Verse 12. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's, that's an interesting statement. There's a holiness without which no one sees the Lord. Hmm. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness, and we're over time, so I don't have time to go there, but that's referencing Deuteronomy 29, not do bitter feelings. Make a note, Deuteronomy 29, 18, it's not talking about 
bitter feelings towards people. It's a citation of Deuteronomy 29. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He said, I'll sell my birthright now and repent later. And then he couldn't. And the whole point of this passage is, take care. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So the terrifying thing is, I don't, once I choose to reject God, I don't have the power on my own without his help to repent. And so, yeah, does God prove to be incredibly patient and gracious? Does he grant people repentance who again and again spurn his grace? Sure he does. Does the Bible tell you, don't presume upon it, don't take it for granted, be careful? Yeah, it does. So, sure, if you're going to say, I'll sin today and repent tomorrow, be careful, maybe. That's what Esau thought. We're at time. I'll stick around. God bless. Good day. Thank you.